0: Hello again, Tudor family. Welcome back to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. I'm your host, Steph Storer, and on today's Ask the Expert, I'm so happy to introduce you to historian Valerie Shute. Valerie is here today to discuss misunderstood and forgotten queens of England. The Tudor's Dynasty podcast.
1: Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. This is the Tudor's
0: Dynasty Podcast. And now, Ask the Expert with Steph. Now, originally, we had a list a mile long of queens to talk about. But then we realized that unless we want to do a six-hour-long episode today, we should probably pare that down slightly. So since we are the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast, after all, we're going to keep it from kind of Middle Ages medieval time period through the Tudor time period, or at least Tudor adjacent timing if you guys get that. So um, I think we're good to go, right, Valerie? I think so. All right. Welcome to the show and off we go. So I, I have tons and tons of questions for you about Misunderstood Queen's. There's so many misconceptions about a lot of these women that I'm really looking forward to clearing all of that up with you today. But before we go into the misunderstood queens, I know that when we were talking about this, we also mentioned maybe forgotten queens. And that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, secret queens that we don't know about. But what do you think it means to be a forgotten queen?
1: Honestly, I think there are so many forgotten queens. And this is because some of the most familiar queens are really larger than life, like the Six Wives of Henry VIII or Elizabeth I or Queen Victoria. And they tend to kind of overshadow a lot of other queens, which really has led to many misunderstandings and stereotypes or just kind of uh, not a great desire to know about some, of, some other queens. I mean, really, I work on Queen Mary I and no matter how much I write and publish, you know, Elizabeth is always more famous. So it's really hard to put out a new image of Mary that's accepted popularly. So like academically, Mary's starting to get a new image, but not necessarily like in the public perception because, you know, somebody like Elizabeth is just so much more popular or larger than life. I mean, the other thing is when anyone thinks of Queen's, You automatically tend to think of well-known English and Western European queens, you know, even people like Catherine de' Medici and Marie de Guise and uh, Mary of France, but you kind of forget that so many other cultures had queens too, like the native New Zealand peoples, or there's African queens, um, North American queens, even empresses in many Asian cultures. So there are lots and lots and lots of queens who just aren't that familiar because they're from places or time periods, just not as well known as the Tudor period. Um, one of the queens I actually am really interested in is a medieval queen. And by no means is she forgotten, but she's just not that, you know, as popular, maybe, if you want to say. So I'm really interested in Queen Margaret of Scotland, who the patron saint of Scotland. Um, her chapel's at Edinburgh Castle, but it's small and easy to overlook. And while, like, the name might be familiar... I feel like not that much is actually known about her. She doesn't have the same kind of popular interest. So I think there's lots of ways to determine what a forgotten queen is.
0: Agreed. Agreed. It's, there's so much to cover and, you know, I mean, I think that could be a great episode by itself as well. Now that we're talking about it, Um, it's so hard to decide what to, what to actually focus on because there's just so much to cover and it's all so interesting. Um, But here we go. That's okay. We will look at some of the misunderstood queens of England. Of course, we'll keep it to England and we'll keep it to this time period just so that we, again, aren't here for a million hours. Sounds So let's start off with, oddly enough, we're actually not even going to start with an official queen. Um, But depending on who you talk to, she should have been an official queen, right? So let's kick things off with the Empress Matilda. I think that one of the focuses around her, and rightfully so, is the fact that she wasn't officially a queen. Why don't you tell us a little bit about why she wasn't a queen, but why she should have been, and, or if she shouldn't have been, you know, kind of what do you think the misunderstandings around that whole situation are?
1: Sure. Um, I think Empress Matilda is really interesting because, like I said, as someone who works primarily on Queen Mary I, the first actual queen crown crowned queen of england matilda is someone who frequently gets mentioned in passing you know as maybe was she actually the first queen and not mary um so i feel like i come like matilda gets mentioned a lot alongside mary but almost as a footnote and i think that's kind of what makes her interesting is nobody quite knows what to do with matilda so was she a queen wasn't she a queen and i think the reason for that is so she was the daughter of henry the first of england So she was a princess. She was wife to Holy Roman Emperor Henry V. Um, At her first husband's death, she married Geoffrey Count of Anjou at her father's insistence to like shore up his English holdings. Uh, But Henry I at his death had no other legitimate children besides Matilda. So he made her his heir. Well, as you can imagine, in 1135, this was not really the most popular idea to have this princess become queen. So she faced great opposition and the throne was eventually seized by Stephen of Blois, who was backed by the church. So they fought for many, many years back and forth of, should it be a, a male who had the throne, who maybe had an army backing? Should it be Matilda who had the inheritance right to be queen? Stephen was captured in 1141 But then, when Matilda went to be crowned, she was really met with great unpopularity. Like the public just wasn't ready for this queen and they weren't sure what to make of her. So, after several years of fighting and back and forth, eventually uh, Matilda's son became King Henry II of England in 1154. And there's really so much to her story, and she's a really interesting woman and certainly deserving of more mainstream attention. Um, You know, even if I'll have a hard time accepting her as the first queen of England at some point. But I think it's because the differences with her and Mary, maybe, is that Mary also had to fight a coup to the throne. But at that time period, it was accepted that even though she was a bastard, her father was king of England legally before her. And that made her eligible to be queen just simply from inheritance and dynasty. And with Matilda, that wasn't quite as accepted yet, or there were other factors in, you know, 1135.
0: So the two things that I I really want to focus on as far as the misconceptions around her. The first thing is, was there an actual official rule that a woman couldn't be the queen or king of England?
1: No. So there was no such thing as Salic law, like in France, which did exclusively um, exclude a woman from inheriting the throne. In England, there was not, but certainly it was never expected um, that a woman would inherit the throne on her own.
0: So it was simply just that people just didn't want it or didn't think a woman could, could do it. There wasn't actually a rule there. Okay. Then the second thing was you mentioned it before. So I just wanted to clarify again, her father did actually name her his heir, correct?
1: I think so. I mean, I'm not like a Matilda specialist, but from what I understand, he did expect that Matilda would succeed him, you know, um, as, as his heir. So he didn't necessarily see a problem with it. But there were lots of outside issues. And um, sometimes when you think about the Middle Ages, it doesn't seem like the thrones were necessarily as secure. You know, so even when you think back to later, what some of the queens will talk about with the War of the Roses, it's not like the succession was always incredibly easy and laid out. You know, there were other contenders. Right, right.
0: Unless there was somebody who had, you know, one son, he lived to be to take over when his father died. And that's it. Not a lot of them were as cut and dry as, as that would have been. Okay, so the next one that we're going to talk about is Eleanor of Aquitaine. And again, she's one of my favorites. So I will have to try my best not to spend the entire rest of the episode talking about Eleanor. But... As we continue to talk about misunderstood queens, one of the things about Eleanor of Aquitaine is her personality. I think that people think of her as this kind of immoral, promiscuous um, woman who potentially poisoned her husband's lover and you know revolted against her husband and all of these negative things. But I would like to, in the next, you know, four minutes, redeem her a little bit because she's awesome.
1: (laughs) I mean, I think what you've mentioned and what really gets to the core of this issue is that Eleanor was a duchess in her own right, wealthy and powerful. And that is threatening. So it was very easy to say things very negative about her and make these accusations in an effort to curb some of the power that she actually had i mean when you think about eleanor of aquitaine you think she is so well known i mean art music movies film famously Catherine hepburn won the academy award for best actress you know in 1968 for her portrayal of eleanor in the um the Lion in Winter. I mean, Eleanor is one of those people who who has a great reputation. And because of that, it can be easily construed and she can very easily have detractors who say, but wait a minute, you know, did she really do all of those things? So she was married to Louis Seventh of France and the marriage was annulled. She was later married to Henry II of England. They had five sons and three daughters. And you're right. The couple became estranged. Um, Henry II later had her imprisoned for supporting the revolt of their son, Henry, against him. And Eleanor wasn't even released for prison from prison for 16 years. And it wasn't until after the death of her husband and one of her other sons became king and She, By the time she died, she had outlived all except two of her children. So, I mean, I think the woman saw a lot. I think she had a really big role in politics. She had a big role in the Crusades. As the Queen Dowager, she was a regent while her son, King Richard, went on the Third Crusade. So I think it's one of those things where she has become, uh, or she has had some of these bad reputations or bad characteristics put onto her as a way to kind of take away from how powerful she really was at the time.
0: Sure. And another thing that I, you just mentioned how she was the regent for her son, correct me if I'm wrong, but her, her son was actually married at the time, right. When she, when she was the regent. Um, and I always picture, uh, this kind of you know, pushy mother-in-law figure um, as as the role that she's taking on because she really had her hands in everything. And maybe it was negative, but I still can't, I, I can't bring myself to have any sort of distaste for her at all. I think she's great.
1: I think that role of pushy mother-in-law was also another one of those maybe stereotypes. You know, so you kind of think that there was this woman who who did have lots of influence over her son. And like that same stereotype kind of exists for Margaret Beaufort, described as really dominating Elizabeth of York. And, you know, I don't really think that's true. I think maybe they worked together and they had different roles, you know, but certainly Margaret was an important figure in Henry VII's life. I think in the same way that Eleanor would have been a very important figure in the lives of her sons.
0: Okay, so we're gonna switch gears a little bit away from Eleanor of Aquitaine. And now we're gonna talk about Elizabeth Woodville. The misconceptions around her are just so interesting because it's it's basically mis- misconceptions about her entire family. But we'll stick with just her. We will try not to talk about her mom, but her mom plays a huge role, I think, in why we have the misconceptions about her that we have. But one of the things that we should clear up about Elizabeth Woodville is these weird rumors that went around that she came from a family of witches. How do you think that started, first of all?
1: I'm not entirely sure how it started, but I think it goes back to, and I hate to keep saying this, but I think it goes back to some gender stereotypes that, you know, some of these powerful women, there had to be a reason why they were. Or there had to be a reason why they were dominant, more dominant than their husband. Or they had to be a reason why, you know, Elizabeth Woodville was able to make a match with Edward IV, seeing as that she had already been married and had kids previously. And Edward could have had his pick of women to be his queen. So I think sometimes they just start as little rumors to discredit a specific female. And in this case, it was... Elizabeth and her mother and somehow you know the rumors just continue because they're picked up and picked up and then they become really interesting stories and entertaining stories you know so you can't escape the idea that Elizabeth Woodville and her mom were witches because of that the novel and tv series based on Philippa Gregory you know who basically shows them doing witchcraft or something like it whenever they speak to the river and, you know, things. So it's it's like the, the myth kind of started and now it's larger than life and you really can't get away from it.
0: I'm glad you brought up uh, the literature and Philippa Gregory because... I wanted to know if some of the examples of the witchcraft that they participated in, in her books, and obviously in the shows on television, which guilty as charged, I definitely watched them all. And I think it's really interesting and it's fun and entertaining, but obviously there are people who watch these things and take it as fact. Um, So do you think that the things that she wrote about or that were portrayed in the, the television series were from her own imagination? Or did any of those examples actually come from the time when people thought that she was a witch and then, you know, Philippa just took those things and ran with them?
1: I will I will admit lots of things right up front. One, I have also seen and read pretty much all of Philippa Gregory's works and the TV shows. And really, I think The Other Boleyn Girl is one of the reasons I became really interested in The Tudors.
0: You know, when I was under. Me too. College, Me too. We definitely reading, have that in common. Yeah. You know,
1: reading some of these stories. Now, I'm not as well versed in medieval witchcraft, so I will admit that. Uh, and it has been a long time since I have seen. Um, I think, was it the White Queen? I think, is that is that the right title? I think it's. The
0: yeah, one. they're the White Queen and the White Princess. Okay, and then so it's been a while. And the Red Queen, I think, was just the book.
1: Okay. So it's, we'll it's have been to... a while since I have seen those or read them. Um, So I'm not entirely sure what witchcraft would have been understood in, you know, the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries. I'm just not entirely sure. But I do think that witchcraft was one of those things where it was very easy to imagine what it could be, or that lots of things that were incredibly benign could be easily construed as witchcraft. So I know that's not a great answer to your question, but I do think that seemingly benign acts by Elizabeth Woodville and her mother could have been easily construed as witchcraft.
0: So we'll head forward a little bit. We're just going to march on here now to a little bit... Well, it was it was kind of overlapping a bit, but we're going to talk about Margaret of Anjou, So again, there's a lot of the literature that is fictional that we get a lot of our um, opinions of her. But she was seen as this very kind of angry and controlling figure as the wife of Henry VI. And we know that he was a weak and kind of sickly and obviously unstable king. So he did need someone to be strong, um, in that relationship, but was it all bad? Tell us about Margaret of Anjou.
1: So what you mentioned about Margaret being known as, you know, vengeful and overpowering and controlling those kind of rumors existed in her own time, but really they became, they became solidified with Shakespeare. So Margaret of Anjou is probably best known for being in all four plays of William Shakespeare's first tetralogy. So this would be Henry the Parts One, Two, and Three, and Richard the And one, she's a really popular queen of Shakespeare. I mean, there are no there is no end to depictions of her, and even other plays and films and things that are based on just Margaret of Anjou, as pulled from Shakespeare's plays. And in those plays, she is vengeful, bent on getting revenge, powerful, ruthless, She and she easily overpowers her husband. And that's kind of the reputation has just stuck. And I really think we can thank Shakespeare for that reputation. But in her own lifetime, I mean, she was very powerful. She was married to Henry VI who was then deposed by Edward IV, but then later became King of England very briefly again. She was one of the leading figures in the Wars of the Roses for the Lancastrian side. And as her husband suffered from these frequent bouts of illness, she often ruled in his place, which absolutely earned her political opponents. And one of the ways they discredited her was by saying that she was overpowering her husband, that she was ruling in his place, And she was out of line for her roles as a queen consort. Um, Her only son, Edward of Westminster, she really fought for him to become king after her husband, you know, instead of Edward IV. And her son was killed at the Battle of Tewkesbury in 1471. And really that kind of broke her spirit. So she ended up living and dying in France. Um, But really her reputation is still this vengeful, nasty woman. And I think if you think about her circumstance, she was in a really tough spot. Her husband was not always an efficient or effective king. He did have illnesses. And she had to fight for his position as king and her son's position as future king because of the Wars of the Roses. You know, she had to make a firm stance to support her, her family. And because of that, she has kind of suffered in reputation.
0: Now we are at, you know, the sweet spot, I think. I think we're here at the Tudor period now. And here's where we can just really take off. I think it probably all of our listeners and stuff were excited to get to all of Henry VIII's wives. So again, I keep saying this, we can have an entire episode on every single one of these women. So we'll have to try to just kind of pick a rumor or pick some misunderstandings and and just keep on trucking here. But we will start with Catherine of Aragon. One of the biggest misunderstandings, I think, one of the, you know, the rumors swirling around about her is her relationship with Henry's brother Arthur, to whom she was married first before he passed away. And there's the claim that they never consummated their marriage, which is why it was okay for Henry and her. To then get married what do you think about this
1: i think her relationship with arthur is really important and not necessarily because of whether or not they ever consummated their marriage but because of the political implications of um the match that she was an infanta of spain and the tudors were not you know they were a brand new dynasty and henry the reached out To marry into a powerful European family to give his dynasty, you know, some some power, some, some credentials, essentially. So I think the match itself is really, really important. But you're right in that we tend to only focus on whether or not they had sex. And that seems to be the only thing that gets discussed between Catherine and Arthur. And one, I'll say I'm not entirely sure we would ever know. I mean, it's one of those things like that wouldn't have been, you know, documented and written down. The royal couple, you know, consummated the marriage last evening or something. I think there would have been an assumption at the time that they did, you know, that was expected. They were married. They had a wedding night. Sure. You know, that would be the natural progression of, of things. Um, But when you look at, you know, you really, that doesn't, their, their relationship comes up at two times later in Catherine's life. So one is when she goes to marry Henry VIII. And because she was married to Arthur, she she and Henry needed a papal dispensation to marry because she would have had relations with with Arthur. So at the time, she says, you know, I'm a virgin. We never consummated the marriage. And Henry VIII accepts this because that's what needed to you know, that's what had to be acceptable for them to get the papal dispensation to marry. So in 1509, everybody accepted that Catherine was a virgin at their marriage, and there was no question of it. It was just, yes, you know, the, the consummation never happened. So it wasn't until later when Henry tried to separate that he needed a reason to separate and her previous relations with his brother would have been the reason. So that's when it comes up in the trials. And I think I honestly, I believe Catherine. I mean, I've looked at the evidence and even some newer Spanish sources have recently come out. And uh I'm there's gonna be an article about it later this year that I'm editing for someone that that even talks about the Spanish sources. And everywhere Catherine went she constantly professed that she never had sex with Arthur. And her ladies who were with her at the time attest to the same thing. And Catherine was even willing to break the seal of confession um, and confess to her I mean, her confessor that she was a virgin at her marriage to Henry VIII. And she was willing to have her confessor break the seal and make it publicly known that that's what she said, which would have been a really big deal. Because confession was entirely private and couldn't be, couldn't be discussed outside of the confessional between the priest or whoever and the confessee. So I think that it becomes a really important issue, but sometimes it dominates other issues or other things that we could be learning or understanding about Catherine and Arthur instead.
0: And here we are at Anne Boleyn. The list of things that we could talk about with Anne Boleyn is there, miles too, and miles many. long. Why don't we talk about then the, uh, the accusation of incest? Sure. Was that actually something that she was on trial for? And where did that even come from?
1: I mean, I think, well, her brother George was executed with her. And maybe he knew too much, you know, of of her supposed other relationships that she had going on, whether or not any of that is true, is one of those things where I think the consensus is that she was largely innocent, but, you know, there, she couldn't be accused of adultery if there were no men accused with her. You know, she had to have adultery with someone. So the men were accused and executed as well. I think that accusation of incest is really interesting because I don't think it was needed. So, I mean, again, this is one of those things, I suppose, we will never, ever know. Did she cheat on Henry? Maybe. Did, did she have incest with her brother? Probably not. But it's one of those things that kind of gets picked up in the imagination when you think about Anne Boleyn is desperate towards the end of her queenship. And this essentially comes about in... January 1536, Catherine of Aragon dies, and around the same time, Anne Boleyn miscarries. And when you think about it, Catherine of Aragon was a safeguard for Anne Boleyn, so the women might have been enemies after Henry married her. But with Catherine living, Henry VIII was always going to keep Anne Boleyn as his wife because he could not risk divorcing a second time and having a third living wife. I mean, he was already accused of polygamy or bigamy, you know, on the continent. And imagine if he would have had two other two wives, you know, living and he took a third one. So whenever Catherine dies and Anne Boleyn miscarries and she's only had a daughter so far and her and Henry seem to be fighting, you know, you can imagine a desperate woman who really wants to get pregnant. And I think maybe that's where the idea of her incest with George or her sexual relations with these other people comes into play you know she must have been trying to have a baby at all costs now whether or not any of that's true i highly doubt but i think that's where some of those myths come from is that you can see her or spin her as a woman desperate to regain control and power that she had and maybe didn't have anymore Well, this has
0: been such an interesting conversation. I feel like we could just continue and continue and continue. I think we'll probably have to stop there because um, we have, you know, however many queens. After that, we will do another episode on the later queens. I wanted to thank you so much for talking about these queens with us today, helping us kind of get out of some of these misunderstandings. It's been really an enlightening conversation, and I'm so happy to have you, Valerie. Thank you again.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. I I think we could talk uh, misunderstandings and myths all day.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.